Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Good morning. I'm so grateful that you're here today, or maybe you're watching from home or listening as you travel. I don't take it for granted that uh, you'd give us some of your time and space this summer. We're launching a summer series this weekend. I'm excited to tell you about it. We just finished several weeks in the New Testament looking at the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church. Uh, Jesus had an incredible respect for what Christians, we Christians call today the Old Testament. And there are big portions of the Old Testament. So your Old Testament is not uh, put together in there chronologically. It's put together in there by what type of book it is. So there's a historical section. uh, There's a prophetic section. uh, There's a poetic section in your Old Testament. And they are uh, so valuable, it is so valuable today. In fact, right in the middle then of our Bibles is a collection of 150 poems that we call the Psalms. And the New Testament is pointing back to them often. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let's read this out loud together. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What, what, is, the, what is a psalm? When it's talking about this, what's it talking about? When we look at the book of psalms, what is a psalm? And the word, I like diving into the etymology of a word. And the word started out saline which means to pluck. And then from that word came psalmos, which means a a song sung to harp music. And it wouldn't be like a modern day harp that takes a cart and maybe even a couple people to bring it in and set it up in the orchestra section. It was a small handheld stringed instrument that most translations, uh, you're going to see the word lyre there. L-Y-R-E, David is playing a lyre. It's a small handheld string instrument. And then finally, this word landed in a place, the English word psalm. If you're taking notes, it means this. It means sacred song. And so it would be more accurate to describe the psalms as a set of song lyrics. Many of the psalms were written by uh, King David, like David and Goliath David. And there are other authors as well. Um, And we see throughout the Psalms, I mean, David wrote the Psalms through many different situations and circumstances in his life. He'd write them in a cave, on a mountaintop. Uh, He'd write them in a place of authority. He'd write them fleeing on the run. Uh, He'd write them uh, scared, uh, fearful. He'd write them in battle. He'd write them after victory. There's other authors. At At the top of each Psalm, almost every Psalm, it'll tell you who wrote it. And sometimes it'll even give you more context of the tune it was set to or the reason it was written. A study Bible even goes a long way uh, to tell you the context, even more context of where that would fit in to the rest of Scripture. Jesus took these sacred songs so seriously. He would often quote from the Old Testament. He'd use it to teach us about God. He'd use it to prove his, his points. 
But what text do you think he quoted from more than any other text in the Old Testament? The Psalms. Jesus quoted these song lyrics more than any other text. The hymn that Jesus sang at the Passover meal would have been the great Hillel, Psalms 113 through 118. He sung these constantly throughout his life so that he, he knew them by heart. It, it is the book of the Bible that he quotes more than any other. And what we see in Jesus' life is that Jesus' life, Jesus' songbook, let's put this up here so I say it right. The Psalms were Jesus' songbook. But the Psalms were not simply sung by Jesus, they are also about him. Most of the Psalms, read in light of the entire Bible, bring us back to Jesus. So a Psalm would have started out as a, a Saline, a Psalmos by David or Asaph or, 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 or Moses or an anonymous writer. They end up being the songs of Jesus. And because he took them so seriously, the, the church takes them seriously. Because he took them seriously, I think we, sh we should take them seriously. Here's the thing. We all know that music intrinsically can communicate things that only written words or only spoken words cannot. Music stirs us, moves us, makes us want to react and respond. We're able to say things in an engaging way that words alone cannot do. I was a worship pastor for 10 years. I've been a preaching pastor uh, for a few years now. And I'll tell you, people don't remember the sermons. They remember the songs. You'll leave here today. This sermon goes all over the stinking place. This is all over the place today. You'll leave here remembering, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. It just drives something into our hearts, into our souls. That, that, that words, this is why Christianity, friend, is a singing faith. Every church is singing today. Christianity is a singing faith. And, and many worship songs are based on the Psalms. And when you start reading them, you realize how influential they are. Influential to our culture, even influential to uh, just rock songs, pop songs, songs that don't have anything to do with Christianity, they pull from the Psalms. You, you'll read through the Psalms and see a line and go, I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know the Bible inspired that. Many of you know I love music. My favorite day of the week used to be Tuesday because Tuesday's when new music would come out. The labels got together, they changed it to Friday a few years ago. Now Friday's my favorite day of the week. I love it when a new album comes out from one of my favorite artists. And I will, I'll take an album and I love listening to it start to end all the way through, no interruptions. I'll put in headphones, my favorite thing to do is put it in and go on a drive and listen to the whole thing all the way through. It's like a movie to me. Sometimes I'll even wait and not listen to the singles because I don't wanna, it's like, when, do you ever go to a movie and you like close your eyes and plug your ears for the previews because you don't want to give anything away for the upcoming movies because they tell you too much. Sometimes I'll just wait on the singles, I'll listen to the whole album all the way, all the way through. I love the Crowder, the new Crowder album came out on Friday. I'm saving it. I'm saving it for a special time. Going to listen to it all the way through. You guys are acting like you don't know nothing about Crowder. Get with it. <laughs> I love making playlists. I've got morning playlists. I used to have, my brother gave me for my birthday when I was a kid, a boombox, had a CD player on the top, tape on the bottom, and you could record from the CD onto a tape. This boombox also had a little microphone you could put into it. 
So I would record my voice onto the tape. I would DJ uh, stuff for my, I was rocking Rylan from WLTR <laughs> in Kansas City. And I would DJ for my aunt and I record the song from the CD on there and I'd mail it to my aunt, she loved it. And uh, now, then I got a little older, they came out with a CD burner. Woo! <laughs> Burn your own mixed CDs. Now, good grief, you can, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, you can just make a playlist from any song in the world. I make morning playlists, nighttime playlists, road trip play playlists, date night playlists, kid playlists, holiday playlists. I've got a moving playlist for when I help people move. <laughs> Seen you move, you move the mountains. I believe you'll do it again. It's just any song with move in it. I love making playlists for other people because you can make a playlist on there and you can send it to someone. About a year ago, I sent a playlist to a friend of mine who lives across the country, a drummer friend of mine. And I said, hey, tell me what all these songs have in common. Never heard back. I'm like, flame, this is never going. Then, no, a few months ago, he texts me drum intros. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, that playlist you sent me, they all got drum intros. Like, you got it. That's right. So we created a playlist for you. On Spotify, there's a Rockbrook playlist, um, but we turned it into the Songs of the Summer playlist for this summer. And it's got several songs in there that we're going to sing in our weekend service. It's also, I put in about 10 songs that I like right now. Uh, Tommy Walker and CeCe Winans, Johnny Lang, a bunch of different things in there. I'd love to know uh, what song you're into right now. So if you've got a song that's speaking to you, moving you, that you're loving right now, uh, write it on your communication card for me. Just jot it down anywhere on the communication card uh, what song you love right now. I'd love to know what our church is listening to. I'll listen to it. And uh, it's also on the app communication card, the digital one. If you just put in your name, scroll down a little bit, uh, it'll have a Songs of the Summer box. And just throw a song in there. I'd love to listen to it. Maybe we'll add it add it to this playlist as well. You know, we got to screen them first, so, uh, you know what I'm saying, but, um, <laughs> you know, music can bring you back in time, can't it? It helps us relive something that maybe happened months ago, years ago, decades ago. Feelings maybe that you want to relive, feelings that you don't. Uh, if you're taking notes, write this in. Music can impress truths about God into our hearts like nothing else can. Memories have power to bring you back to a specific time or emotion. Feel like you can move forward and do it again. Science tells us music strengthens the neural pathways with something called implicit memories. Implicit memories are the last part of our memory to go. My grandmother loved music. Uh, she played piano for decades in the church and even when her memory faded, uh, she was able to remember the gospel. She was because she remembered these hymns and all these songs and all this worship music that flooded her mind. Worship music can take a truth about God and experience with God, place it deep within our hearts. The psalm writers, psalmists, know this. And so they're writing things down of when they're facing doubts, fears, worries. They had these songs pointing back to a past victory that would pull them through it again. Again, Christianity, it's a singing faith. It gets you through. Now, the world uses this too. It's why big influencers in our world are musicians. They fill stadiums. They have huge followings, huge online followings. People listen to their songs. 
uh, that gets stuck in their head. People listen to their ideas. Uh, they think um, that those people are a lot smarter than they really are. <laughs> and, uh, and they subscribe, subscribe to them because it's so influential, it's so powerful. And these songs, they bring us memories. Memories have power. Um, certain artists just take me back to a certain, there's certain songs I just can't even listen to without thinking about something specific. I've got kind of a funny one for you today, and that is anytime I hear the Beach Boys, um, I'm taken back to a, a certain moment in time, and it was when our family lived in Omaha, and I was a kid, and we would uh, carpool to school. We'd carpool with this teenage girl and her siblings in our neighborhood and drive to school, and school was a little ways away, so uh, there was uh, a time in the car. And she had a Best of Beach Boys tape that she put in and listened to it every single morning so loud. One day, and she put it in the radio, and it's the radio kind of like this. I pulled this out of my wife's 2001 Honda CRV, and uh, I replaced it. I couldn't update the car, so I updated the radio. You know what I'm saying? But it was a little bit older than this, but it was one like this that had the tape player and then did you ever have one of these that on each side is a big volume knob and then a big tuning knob? And so we'd put in the tape, listen to Beach Boys, one morning, busy intersection, it's rush hour, we get in a fender bender on the way to school. And you know how chaotic that can be. We kind of pull off the intersection. I see some of you looking at your notes. We'll get to it in a minute, You're just all right. <laughs> and uh, like, where is this in my notes? It's not in there, but... We get in this little fender bender and, you know, people are coming around and, you know, they see, wow, it's this teenage girl, kids, you know, in the morning on the way to school, they're wanting to see if we're okay. And people are trying to talk and it's just beach boys blaring out of the thing. No one can hear each other. And she's over here trying to turn it down and someone's like, is the car okay? And she's like, well, the radio's broken. And she's trying to turn it down. Someone finally reaches in or reaches across and turns down the radio. She's so frazzled, she's just over there spinning the tuning knob while the tape is playing. So it's just anytime Beach Boys come up, I have, I have that memory. No Beach Boys in the Spotify playlist because I didn't want to bring that out, but uh, that's one resource for you. Uh, another resource for you is a 40-day reading plan in the Psalms. Uh, this is, put it in your worship guide. It's also on the app. It, just a plan that if you've never read the Psalms, take the journey of the Psalms this summer. And we'll be in this series for uh, about a couple months, a little bit more than 40 days, but uh, just read through the Psalms. What you'll find is the Psalms are, are not as much about doctrine as they are about how the human heart works, how God made us. When you get into the Psalms, you get into the motives and what you actually have from the Psalms is what I would call a third way of dealing with feelings, a gospel way of dealing with our emotions. It's a unique way because the main ways that you have in front of us that the world gives us very different advice. On one hand, uh, you have what I'm going to call the legalist's approach to emotions and feelings. It's a religious approach. And that is to be very uncomfortable with feelings, not wanting to see the darkness, the intensity, the rawness of what's really going down in the human heart. And what I mean by legalist or religion is that if you believe 
that you must warrant God's attention and support through your own virtue? If you believe that you're, you're good enough to warrant God's attention and support, you're going to be very uncomfortable with strong feelings. You're going to deny them, not look at them. You'll say, um, I'm not angry. I'm not confused. I'm not struggling. I'm not frustrated. And you'll, you'll want to move past those feelings because you don't want to admit what's in really in your heart and really what's going on down there. And so their, their approach is to stuff them down, to deny them. I'm not doubting. I'm not wrestling with this. And what happens is legalists deny their feelings. The religious, they don't want to address the rawness. Now, the other approach is the secular approach to feelings. And it's the, the cultural, popular way, and that is to surrender. It's the exact opposite. This way is to surrender to feelings. Now, a secularist, that's one who, uh, like we have a secular culture. They, they, they don't have a need, they don't think they need God. And a secular, that's who a secularist is. One who, maybe they don't believe in God. Maybe they even do believe that there's a God, but they don't need him in, in their life. They don't need God. And, and a secularist, their approach is to the sovereignty of feelings. The premise is, which is completely indefensible, but it's out there, and that is your feelings are who you really are. When you find a feeling, you go, oh, that's, that's what it is. That's what I'm about. Nothing I can do about it. That's who I really am. That, that your feelings are not, though, who you really are. People might say, well, this is how I, I feel. That's who I am. No, you, there's lots of things that make up who you are, not just your feelings. Like, you have beliefs. You have practices. It's an arbitrary thing to say that just the feelings is the only part of you, but that's the secular approach, to see feelings and being in touch with your feelings as an expression of feelings, that, that that's good in and of itself. And the secularists, if you want to sum it up, they vent their feelings. The Psalms don't do either. Not at all. They're a third way. They're a gospel way. The Psalms are neither a, a rational discussion of feelings, nor are they a, an expression of feelings. They don't deny their feelings. They don't vent their feelings. Now, when you read them, people are constantly shocked by the rawness of the feelings. Uh, I, I mean, you, the fear the anger, the hostility, the rawness, white heat, emotions, really, really disturb some people today. In fact, you'll see many memes on social media. You'll hear stuff on podcasts, on cable news, whatever. They'll pull like one line out of a Psalms and, and approach a Christian and be like, did you know this was in your Bible? Did you know that this was in there? And they're just really disturbed by the rawness of what's in the Psalms. You look at it and go, man, what is that doing in my Bible? And the answer is that the psalmists are not discussing their feelings or expressing their feelings. They're not denying them. They're not venting them. What the psalmists are doing is psalmists pray their feelings. Psalmists pray their feelings. They are processing their feelings in the presence of God. That's neither legalist or secular. That... It's neither religion nor is it popular. 
to be under aware of your feelings or to be overawed by your own emotions and feelings, both of those lead to disaster. So each week we're going to look at a psalm or a topic that a psalm brings up and addresses and instead of denying our emotions, instead of yielding to our emotions, we're going to work through them with God. In this series, we'll discover in the Psalms how to go about making a difficult decision, how to work through doubts, how to handle stress when it seems relentless, uh, what to do with people that we hate, uh, how to enjoy God again and have the awe and wonder of who God is in our life. What, what do you do when God leads you to do something um, that you don't want to do? And there's several different hymns to pull from in very, several different sections. And, and so let's look at a psalm today. And this specific psalm today is going to point us to Jesus. And how fitting that we've just celebrated our 24th birthday as a church. We're going to look at Psalm 24. And as we approach this psalm, uh, there's a header on it. In, in your Bible, it probably says, of David, a psalm, or a psalm of David. And that's all the context we get so far. But we'll see that this psalm has rich history in our faith. And we'll see in here three major questions. I spaced them out throughout your outline. Three different questions that really your life turns on these questions. It's, it's these questions. Who owns it all? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who is the king of glory? You may not realize it, but your life turns on these three questions. You might say, well, I've never even uttered those questions out loud before. Uh, but as you'll see today, uh, your life, your worldview, your perspective, your decision hangs on these three questions. Because these three questions address the biggest things in life. It begins addressing uh, everything, literally everything. Um, then it addresses people, then it addresses God. In verse 1 of the psalm, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. And, and in case you misunderstood what everything includes, um, like one time we were at a pizza place, and uh, I like my pizza sometimes supreme, and uh, we were at this place and they had the toppings up on the menu, and they, she said, what do you want on your pizza? I said, everything. Put everything on it. And then I get the pizza, and there's just meat on it. And she says, is that, is it looks good? And I said, well, this just has every meat on it. I wanted everything on it. I wanted every topping on it. Sometimes people can go to the Bible this way, and they're thinking, like, everything includes only one certain kind of everything. No, this is, like, everything. The world and all who live in it. Why? Why, why is it the Lord's? For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Wow. If you're taking notes, uh, write this in. God made everything. He created it, established it, founded it. Every resource we have came from the earth that God made. All the parts that make up this building uh, came from the earth that God made, gave from, came from the resources God gave us the beams, all of it. Everything about you right now came from what God founded and started. Like you yourself, we were formed from the dust of the earth. Uh, your clothes, your phone, your purse, your wallet, it all came from what God has made. Possibly there's no better scenario to which, uh, or to, which to think about this 
as we're in a series called Songs of the Summer than the world of music copyrights. Have you noticed every once in a while to make national news that some pop artist, rock artist, is suing another artist for stealing their song, stealing their idea? And what did they say? They say, you took my idea. I own that. That's my thing. I own that. And we know this to be true as a general life principle. To the maker of something, go the rights to that thing. God made everything, so who owns it all? Well, creators own their creations. God has rights to everything because he made everything. You thought your stuff was your stuff? Thought your body was your own? To do with what you want? It's God's. This explains why, I'm going to take a little bit of a turn here, but this explains why jealousy is actually a virtue. We think of it as a vice. We think of it as something wrong, but jealousy is actually a virtue. The reason we get confused about this is because we use the words jealousy and envy synonymously, but they're significantly different. Envy is a strong desire... Envy is a strong desire for something that is not rightfully yours. Maybe um, your neighbor's pool, (laughs) an award that someone else got, uh, a recognition and appreciation that someone else in your family or your uh, your workplace or someone around you got uh, when when you didn't. Uh, Envy is a strong desire for something that is not rightfully yours something you have no rights to. Jealousy, however, is a strong desire for something that is rightfully yours. Jealousy comes with it protecting your own rights to something, uh, protecting a song you've written, an invention that you've patented, uh, protecting something you own. For example, a married person has every right to expect that their husband or wife's affections will only go to them, their spouse. So if their affections are going to another, they have every right to issue a warning, to express concern, to be jealous. If you're a married man and you're having lunch with another female or texting with another female or having deep conversations with another female, stop it. It's making your wife jealous and she's godly to be jealous about that. But it's wrong for you to put her in a situation where she has to has to have that. If you're a married woman and your affections, emotions, thoughts are going to another man, it's right, it's godly for your husband to be jealous about that and to say that that's wrong, that that needs, that it needs to stop, to issue a warning, to be jealous. Don't say, well, he's invading my privacy or she's invading my privacy. You two are married. You vowed to forsake all others. There's no doctrine of privacy in here for that. (laughs) There's no vow of privacy in the wedding vows. We understand this. Boy, do we understand this. If someone, when you were leaving church today, if someone gets all up in your truck and starts driving away, (laughs) I mean, we get this. I mean, it's going to be you and the police saying, hello, I'm jealous. That's my truck, and that's good. That's godly. This is why the Bible says God is a jealous God. He has the right to be jealous for everything because he owns it. Many people think that God is like some type of scoundrel for being a jealous God. No, he's right and true. He's the owner of it all. It's virtuous. 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Because he made it, because he made you, because he's your creator, he's also your owner. And once you settle the question of ownership, you settle one of the deepest questions of our lives. Now, the second question, the second uh, part of the psalm brings up, and it's right here in, in verse three. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now, this is a way of saying, man, who could be in the presence of God? Who, can, who could be his friend? Who could be his son or daughter? Who in the world could, could hang out with God? Who can know him? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from their Savior. So this section of the psalm shows us a stark reality that while everything is God's, not everyone sees it that way and not everyone trusts him. Not everything made by God ends up getting used for God. Some have turned to idols. Some use something God has made uh, for an evil purpose and they turn away from God, breaking their connection with God. And God doesn't let dirty hands, impure hearts into his presence. The mountain of the Lord is the place of the temple, the tabernacle, or the presence of the Lord. Who may come into his presence? And we know that the only way to ascend that hill is by looking at what Jesus Christ did on the hill of Calvary. We can't make our hands clean enough, our hearts pure enough. As clean as you can make them, they're not perfectly clean. God is perfect. God is holy. God is terrifying. God is just. My heart doesn't belong on that mountain. My hands don't belong there. That's why in the middle of these words about ascending the hill of the Lord, we get vindication from God, our Savior. We need a Savior. Here's an amazing truth. God is your owner because he created you, but then we rejected his ownership as his creation. So we chose, we allowed ourselves because of our choice to be owned by the evil one. And we put ourselves in Satan's empire rather than God's rule. And then the owner that we rejected, this is the most amazing truth. The owner we rejected bought us back. He made us in the first place. We rejected him. He bought us back. With what? With his own blood. God is your savior. If God is your savior, uh, then there's a question we face, and that is, who do you seek? Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Who or what are you seeking with your life? When he's your savior, you can live out of what he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. When he is your savior, uh, you tend to seek a different thing in your life. That's why the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought back and the price was Jesus' blood. That's how you can know God. That's how you can ascend the mountain of the Lord. When you've been covered in the blood of Jesus, when you've been saved, only if you're taking notes, only those who have been redeemed by Christ may ascend the mountain of the Lord. The word redeem means to buy out. It's, it's a concept 
of redemption. It's the concept of a ransom, that Jesus paid the price for our release from sin and punishment. His death was in exchange for our life. In fact, Scripture is quite clear that redemption is only possible through His blood. In Ephesians 1.7, it says this. Let's read it out loud together. In Him we have redemption through His blood, for the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The streets of heaven will be filled with former captives who, through no work of their own, find themselves redeemed, forgiven, and free because they did not put their trust in idols. They put their trust in God, our Savior. No wonder we'll be singing a new song, a song of praise to the Redeemer who was slain. We were slaves to sin, condemned to eternal separation from God. Jesus paid the price to buy us out, to buy us back, resulting in our freedom. We see this psalm turn now to power and energy and and celebration. We get to the third question. It's who is the king of glory? We get to verse seven and it just ramps up here. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And it repeats itself like a song often will do. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? This King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Obviously, God wants us to get this one. He repeats it again and again. God is the King of glory. This phrase, King of glory, five times in just these few verses. Psalm 24, there, there is deep history here. Um, most Bible teachers, scholars say Psalm 24 was first sung as David uh, first brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Open up the gates. King David is bringing the presence of God into the city. Uh, there's more history to this. This psalm was sung uh, each day in Herod's temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem in the days when Jesus lived on earth. If you'd been there on a Sabbath day, you'd have heard the singing of this psalm. Lift up your heads, you gates, that the King of glory may come in. Each Sunday, Palm Sunday, this would have been sung, when Jesus Christ entered into uh, Jerusalem as King. Open up the gates. The King of Kings is riding into Jerusalem. There's more history to this psalm. This psalm is read by the church on what's called Ascension Day. You know how we have Palm Sunday, we have Easter, there's Pentecost Sunday. There's a day in between Easter and Pentecost that is the day that Jesus ascended into heaven. It's Ascension Day, the day that we celebrate Jesus returning to heaven, the day we celebrate the the commission that he gave to the disciples, the Great Commission. Then he returned to his throne. Open up the gates of heaven. The King of glory is entering to take his seat on the throne. So who is the king of glory? Jesus is the king of glory. I I thought it said, well, the king of glory is the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Well, as you've heard many times, it's one of the most repeated things in scripture. We just sang it in one of our songs already. It's one of the most said things in this church. That is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's the cornerstone of this church. The preaching, the singing, the decisions, our lives, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of glory. So here's the question. And friend, I know this sermon 
had many different elements to it. There's a lot in this psalm to break down, and there's a lot we looked at today. But, but here's the question after, after all this, after all that's said. Who is the gate of your life open to? Who is the door of your life open to? Where does this song need to be sung in your life? Where does this song need to be sung in your life? What gate or door needs to look up and open up to allow Christ in? Is it the gate of your marriage? Is it the gate of your worries? Is it the gate of your faith? Is it the gate of your doubt? Is it the gate of of a habit? Who are you opening the direction, guidance, hope, strength that you need? Lift up your head, O you gates. Doors of your life open for Christ. Or is there an area of your life where the gate is not up, it is down, it is closed. And it's, uh, Jesus, uh, you're welcome here, but could you wait until tomorrow? Could you wait until I figure some stuff out here? Or is it, Jesus, I've got to do some things first. Got to get some paperwork in order. Got to do some things here before I really let you in and be Lord, the King of glory in this area of my life. Open up the door today. Lift up your head, you gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Let's pray together. I want to pray these words uh, just back to God today. God, we recognize it's all yours. There's nothing I will see today that is not yours. Wow, you founded it all. There is nothing in my life, no area of my life that is not yours. And so I, I don't want to trust in an idol. I certainly don't want to trust in myself. I don't want to trust in circumstance. I don't want to put my hope in the wrong thing. I want to give these things back to you. God, I want to be like the person in the psalm that ascended your mountain and stands in your holy place. But I cannot attain that on my own. I ask you for the gift of your presence. I ask you to give me those clean hands and a clear heart. I don't want to lift up my soul to an idol or myself or something that I want to serve, but to you because of all you've done for me. And right now, Lord, just pray this to him. I receive your blessing. I want to be part of this generation that seeks you. As I live this day, I lift up my head. I want to see the King of glory walking into my circumstances, walking into my situations. I lift my eyes to look to you and see you walking through the doors of my life, into my problems, into my mess, into my joy, all of it. You are King of glory over all. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.